What are some of the most important tax accounting considerations when forming a qualified Opportunity Zone fund? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm joined by a real estate tax specialist at Plant Moran, one of the nation's largest certified public accounting firms. Valerie Grundusky, thanks for taking the time to join me today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Yeah, great, absolutely. So I, I know we've we've met a couple times at a couple of the different Opportunity Zone expos around the country and it's uh, it's good to get you on the podcast finally. So thanks for being with us today. I want our conversation today to center on fund creation and but before we get going, just um, want to get this out of the way that I did have a podcast episode a few weeks back that focused on fund creation from a legal perspective. And my guest for that episode was Duval and Stackenfeld's Jessica Malay. That was episode number 37, which first aired on June 19th. But today I want to attack the issue of fund creation and management best practices from a tax perspective. So Valerie, could you tell me really quick before we dive into the weeds here, what are some high-level considerations when creating a qualified opportunity fund? Sure. And so in addition to making sure that you're following the letter of the law and your agreements and whatnot are set up properly, you know, we've been working with some of our fund manager clients to focus on what are the actual tax implications going to be along the way and, and at the end of, of the, the deal. And so, um, you know, it's thinking not just about how things need to be worded, but what's going to happen on those tax returns along the way. And tell me a little bit more about what you do at Plant Moran and who are your Opportunity Zone clients typically? Uh, you know, what are the size of, of the funds that they're creating? What types of fund managers are they or are they real estate developers? primarily, and, and what services are you providing for them? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I've been at Plant Moran for, um, it's actually almost 15 years now, and I've spent my entire career largely, you know, in and out of the real estate industry, um, and with some time, with, you know, in the wealth management space as well. So it's been nice on the front end to be able to focus on where a lot of the early movers and opportunity zones have been, as well as understanding how it will affect the investors, as we talked about on the front here. Um, so, you know, after the, the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we pulled together an opportunity zone practice, which I now lead. And so in addition to being a technical specialist and being, you know, tasked with educating not only internally, but also our clients, our prospects, you know, and anyone in the marketplace who wants to learn more, um, I'm also involved in working with clients to structure um, transactions that they are trying to fund with opportunity zone equity. And so, you know, to answer your question, maybe maybe it is a real estate developer. That's where I would say a lot of what we saw, um, at least up until the second tranche of regulations were released. You know, that was that was most of what we saw, and it was a lot of uh, developers who had projects that maybe they were already contemplating, um, but wanted to learn how they could layer this incentive on top of what they were thinking of doing. Um, but since then, it has expanded some, and we're working with some fund managers who maybe aren't the developers. Um, and we're also working with some folks who are trying to, to use this program with opportun- um, operating businesses as well, which has been um, 
has been fun and interesting. I, from a size perspective, they kind of run the gamut, right? We have some people who are trying to do just, you know, one, maybe one particular project or deal, and we have others who've got a whole host of investments they're looking to make um, and are trying to determine if they want to use that multi-asset approach or, you know, do them all separately. And so you mentioned that you do have some clients that are doing some operating business funds now, whereas, you know, before the second tranche came out, we were primarily real estate, and your background is in real estate tax uh has that been challenging for you to to attack operating business funds or or t- tell me about that a little bit and, and and what has the trend been are you seeing more and more of them come come through your practice right it, it, so like one of the nice things about our firm is that you know while maybe my history has been very tied to the real estate industry we are full service you know we kind of touch almost all industry groups and so what's nice about this program is that we have touch points on basically any any step along the way. It could be the fund, it could be a real estate, it could be operating businesses, and even going so far as to the municipalities and governments who are affected by this. So um, we kind of have this whole team that we can bring to it. And so while the operating businesses, you know, there's a little bit more of a twist on how uh, some of these rules apply, it actually hasn't been too much of a stretch because you still start with the same basic principles. Uh, so if, if anything, it's maybe made it a little bit more fun and interesting because it takes it outside of what, you know, the day-to-day has looked like historically. Right. And I think that's where... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's where where this marketplace is eventually going to go. And I think we're seeing that trend right now. We're going to see more and more operating business funds being created. And I think those are going to be the, the drivers of, of the jobs and the, and the social impact at the end of the day. The real estate is important and it's necessary. And, and it, it was the easiest thing to get going with um, out the door because we had the, the regs and, and there's some muscle memory in the real estate industry for working with a, a tax program such as this one. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like the operating business funds myself and I, I hope to see more and more of them come to light. So if I'm a a real estate developer or a fund manager and I want to put together a qualified opportunity fund and take it to the marketplace and start raising capital, um, what am I coming to you for? What 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 services are you providing to me to help me get my fund off the ground and to be able to take it to the market? Sure. Yeah. So what we you know the way we look at what we do, we don't do um, operating agreements. We can't do some of those legal pieces. And so you still, you know, need to have an attorney who's on board that we would love to work alongside of. So it's looking at not just, again, what does the letter of the law say? How exactly does it have to, you know, be set up um, to meet the the different parameters, but thinking that step forward. So, you know, the few of the things that we've been doing with clients um, start with what we call these agreed upon procedures reports. And it might be thinking a little bit like a, a comfort letter, if you will, where we kind of go through the requirements of the code section and compare it to what your business plan is and, and help you provide something that can show, okay, yes, if we follow along you know, our plan, this will work in this program. Um, we help our clients with the financial projection piece. You know, Some of our clients will come to us where they already have a set of projections. Others need us to start from scratch. Um, but either way, what we intend to do there is layer on not just the potential investor benefit at the end, but also understanding what the taxable income implications will look like um, along the way. So that's something that we've been doing for quite a few of our fund clients. Um, and, and with that investor benefit, helping them understand what's the differentiator for them. So what would the return on this investment look like 
if they weren't using opportunity zones and what does the after-tax return look like for their investor you know that is utilizing the opportunity zone incentive uh, you know, we've been doing some other things just with a cons- from a consulting angle, looking at debt structuring and um, distributions. Uh, we pulled together a template for the 31-month test safe harbor, um, you know, kind of helping them lay out what that business plan might need to look like to get that benefit. As you mentioned, layering on the tax benefits on top of your, your funds projections to, to take those to the, to the marketplace, to potential investors. What are you seeing funds doing wrong, or maybe that's a little harsh? What What are you seeing funds missing out on in in terms of of doing that? Are they are they stopping short sometimes in terms of layering those tax benefits into their projections? And and what do those what happens to those projections when the tax benefits are layered on top properly? Yeah, no, absolutely. So if we start with maybe just the end piece, right, like the benefit and what that looks like, you know, we've got um, a financial advisory arm of our firm as well. And so they've asked me to, you know, look at some of the prospectuses that have crossed their desk from different funds. And it's been interesting to see that while they're, you know, giving all sorts of information about um, what the IRR of the project might look like, they, they do not attempt, at least from, you know, the majority of the ones we've seen, they do not attempt to layer on top of that what what the after-tax IRR could look like. Um, and, and I think some of that is maybe, you know, there's, there's a, some element of risk there, and it's a little bit hard to know how it will work for, you know, one investor versus the next. Um, but with some of the science we've been working with, once we dig into that a little bit deeper, uh, we realize that they are able to show a potential investor group, you know, exactly why making this investment could make more sense, you know, with an opportunity zone benefit than without. You've heard on your podcast and, you know, just in general, not making an investment that you wouldn't have otherwise made. But what is really nice about this is that we can show, okay, if you look at the same investment side by side with and without opportunity zones, you know, what, what that, you know, additional cash that you get to keep in your pocket by not paying taxes uh, can look like. And so one of the most recent ones that we looked at, you know, the after-tax IRR ignoring opportunity zones came in around, let's say, 8%. Um, you know, that's, again, it's after tax, so assuming that you're, you're paying on your exit there. Uh, but once we layered in the opportunity zone benefits, that after tax IRR was almost 12%. So, you know, it almost went at 150% of what it would have been um, otherwise. So I think that can be real meaningful to, you know, the potential investors out there if you can show them, you know, why, why the, this might be worth the extra hassle. Yeah, that's a substantial difference that fund managers should be tripping over themselves to highlight to their to their potential investors. Uh, you mentioned uh, a minute ago debt refinancing, and that's one of the biggest remaining issues still that uh, that needs clarifications in the in the final regulations. Can you tell me what happens if your debt is not structured properly? Um, maybe you can go through a traditional way that that debt is structured that may be the wrong way and then if you could tell me what the right way to do it is uh, what what are some of the differences there and and what are the what are the consequences of of setting that up improperly sure and so there's you know two things where you know debt comes into play and one has to do with the debt finance distributions and the other one has to do with how debt can play in just from an overall basis perspective um so you know trying not to get too technical on you, um, you know, for tax purposes, when you make an opportunity zone investment and you've used 
deferred capital gain dollars, you start out with zero basis. And for tax purposes, if you have zero basis and an investment and there are losses allocated to you, you don't get the benefit of taking those losses on your tax return until you've done something to establish basis, which is either, you know, in this world, some of these step ups, you know, that happen along the way or paying your tax um, on that initial gain to provide basis. But another alternative is if there is non-recourse debt inside of the fund that you receive an allocation of, that allows you to take some of these ordinary deductions that otherwise would be suspended on your return. And, and why this is important and why we've been focusing on this with our clients is that, you know, we know that the back end of this program has some great, you know, potential upside and what you can do there. But on the front end, you're, you're deferring a capital gain, which in most circumstances will be a gain that would have been taxed at a beneficial tax rate. You know, it's not necessarily the highest tax rate um, depending on the type of capital gain. Um, but if you do that at the risk of giving up these ordinary deductions on the front end, which especially in the real estate world, you know, with depreciation and whatnot, you're used to getting losses coming through from your investments. Um, you know, you really have to start questioning, like, well, is that worth it, right? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm deferring this lower rate income and, and, and giving up these current, you know, higher rate deductions. Uh, so, so what we've been trying to to help our clients understand is, is how setting up that debt is important. And, and one thing that, you know, you and I talked about the other day was maybe even considering layering in debt where you otherwise didn't think that it was important to have. Um, you know, if you, if you have a recourse loan in one of these entities and somebody has to be on a guarantee, it is only that partner who gets the benefit of the debt allocation. And so therefore only that partner who would be able to take these losses in early years. Uh, but if you instead were to set up that debt as being non-recourse, you know, it's shared amongst the partners equally and everyone would get some of that, of that benefit of doing so. So two takeaways there. One, if I have a small development that I'm working on and I feel like I don't even need to take on any debt, maybe it's a just a small five or $10 million project, I have all equity that I can use to to get that uh, development going. I may actually want to consider bringing on debt anyway, because otherwise I'm unable to take any deductions along the way from from day one. Is that what you're saying? And then, then, and then the second point is that projects funded uh, by recourse debt um, is probably not the right way to do it. You want to you 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 instead want to structure with non-recourse debt so that all the partners can take the deduction. Did I did I understand you correctly? Yeah, you did, absolutely. And, and part of this also goes back to why we think it's important to really look at the tax impact of, you know, when you're doing financial projections, you know, maybe someone had something that, that you know, set up and showed the projected cash flows, but didn't take it to the next piece to understand what the taxable income or loss allocations would be um, and, and what would happen once that flows out to the investor. And so I think that's where this kind of really plays in. It, it's not necessarily the right answer for every deal. I know some people will listen to this and think it's insane that I'm suggesting you use debt where maybe you didn't otherwise need to, but, you know, based on whatever the facts are of your particular um, taxable income flow over time, it, you, when you compare, you know, a rate that you might be able to get on a, on a loan with, you know, giving up the tax benefits of those losses, it might, you know, it might be pretty clear that that's the right way to go. Yeah, it might work out in some cases. I'm going to put you on the spot here, actually. Uh, do you do you have a specific example you can cite with some with some real numbers? 
Yeah, I was gonna say I, I think that where where it makes sense again is where we're talking about a project where you expect there to be large ordinary losses on the front end. So again, you know, in the real estate world, you've got quite a bit of that with depreciation. Um, I was talking to someone who was looking to do an energy project, a solar project, and those usually have very short uh, depreciable lives, and they take bonus depreciation and whatnot on the front end, and, and so. The only reason they do these deals sometimes is for those huge losses that they would get in year one or year two or something like that. And so, you know, the, the solar client in particular was the one that I most recently talked to about how well, you know, really the only way to get that benefit and not have that stripped away from you um, is by layering debt on top. I do want to add just a quick caveat. It's not that the benefit is stripped away. It's just that it's deferred. So in the same way that you've deferred you know, paying tax on your capital gain, you're now deferring the benefit that you would be otherwise getting from these losses. It's not that they disappear. It's just that, you know, it's, again, it's the time value of money. Right, right. Understood. Uh, what are some other considerations, some tax considerations that developers and, and fund managers setting up a, a fund should should keep in mind? Uh, I, I, I think um, when we spoke on the phone earlier, uh, before we before we got on the podcast here, we discussed uh, the thirty one month test, and and you're you're currently putting together a, a, a template of what that can look like exactly. Because I know there's not really a lot of of guidance, or there's no real standard template that exists out there yet. Can you talk to me a little bit about right. that? Right, exactly. And so you know, it, the way the regulations have come out, they've had some nice you know safe harbors and whatnot that have been built built in that are great to be able to take advantage of. Um, it, and also, let me just real quick make a quick side note that, that a lot of these things we're talking about, I am fully aware that someone could go ahead and structure their fund without doing these. Um, our our point, I guess, for bringing these up or just introducing the concept to our clients is one part to, to get your investor base comfortable with the fact that you're actually going to be able to achieve what you're setting out to achieve on the front end and that you're following along with everything appropriately. Um, but also just to kind of, you know, cover yourself from a safety perspective if you were to come underneath examination from the IRS. So again, to your point, there's nothing that it currently says you have to, you know, exactly how you have to set up what um, that that business plan looks like. But what we're trying to do is provide something for our, from our clients that is tangible and so they can feel comfortable about, you know, being able to actually meet that test and, and have the documentation they need if it were called upon. And again, give their investors confidence that they're actually trying to structure their uh, project in a way that will align um, with the proposed regulations. And so really it's just kind of looking at what's the overall project, how can you kind of show out what your sources and uses will look like over time um, in a way that will, will meet that criteria. Good. Yeah, a lot of it's just about investor confidence. I mean, the IRS may never come calling to actually look at these documents, but well, first of all, if they do, you got to make damn sure you have them. And then second of all, yeah, yeah. it is it is helpful to show the investor uh, that you're serious and, and you're you're doing things the right way to stay in compliance. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, so just two things on that point. The first one being about the investor, I, you know, we've noticed, and especially just in talking to different financial advisors and whatnot, there is still a lot of hesitation. You know, we've, we're going on, you know, a year and a half here um, into this program, and, and we still only have, you know, proposed regulations. We don't have any final guidance, and we still have a ton of questions. You know, you uh, said in the latest hearing, and you heard how many questions there still are, and it makes 
the not just you know the investors themselves but their advisors nervous to make these sort of commitments and so anything that you as a fund manager can do to show that you are on top of it that you understand the implications and how it will affect the investor and that you're doing everything that you possibly can to make it work you know can only help um, build up some of that confidence that's necessary absolutely yeah i agree 100 percent a few other points I wanted to hit upon with you, and actually this was this was an issue that was brought up at the recent hearing a few times. Section 1231 treatment. Uh, I know that you co-authored an article uh, on the Plant Moran website about this. Can you uh, give me the high-level high overview of, of, of what the issue is with Section 1231 gains and, and uh, how, how, you're, how you're treating it for your clients? Sure. Uh, so, so on the you know on the front end, we we had a, a a code section that referenced capital gains in the title, and then just said gains generally within the body of the language, and there were all sorts of questions there. Right. The, the statute, I think we can all the, the statute, I think we can all agree was very poorly worded, was it not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think it, it was gave... only in the title that they used the word capital, and then after that, you were kind of it was like a choose your own adventure. Yeah. It was. Uh, um, it, it gave Treasury a lot of work to do. Exactly, which is probably why it's taking as long as it is. But so the first set of proposed regulations, you know, made everyone comfortable that, yes, 1231 gains were intended to be included um, in the types of gains that could be deferred. And while we acknowledged that maybe the operating business side didn't really pick up speed yet after the first set of proposed regulations, you know, we really were seeing a lot of activity on the real estate side. And so people were making investments knowing they've got, okay, a 1231 gain, I will use that to defer and invest into an opportunity zone fund. Um, and then the second set of regulations came out and those said, okay, well, you can still use 1231 gains, but the date that we will let you use to start your 180 day investment clock isn't necessarily what you thought it would be. Now it can only be the last day of the taxable year. Um, fortunately, they've you know released some guidance since then that says, had you already made your investment prior to the second set of uh, proposed regulations coming out that you were fine, you know, you didn't have to worry about what you had already done, but it was changing what you could do going forward. Uh, so essentially the problem here is that for a standard taxpayer, December 31st becomes the the only date you can use is day one out of 180 if you have Section 1231 gains that you're looking to defer, which I would say a lot of, especially our clients in the real estate space, that, that those are the type of gains they're looking to defer. So in addition, you know, to, to other, is, other issues that that, you know, might cause, it's the fact that now you have frozen six months of the year, um, you know, so that six months leading up to December 31st, uh, that these investors won't be able to make an opportunity zone investment during that time period and have it qualified. And so, you know, we, we don't think that that was the intention or what makes sense. Um, you know, there's a number of different comment letters that was been put out, and we were um, included on one that the Economic Innovation Group Coalition um, included as well. And some of the suggestions to Treasury have been, okay, if you still want to wait until the last day of the year to know for sure that you have the net Section 1231 gain, we understand that, but why not allow an investor to make an investment earlier in the year, and then if once they get to their end of their, you know, their tax year, they find out that it shouldn't have qualified, well, it's like, then you deal with it then. But you shouldn't strip away that ability from an investor um, just because it's possible that they won't end up in a game situation at the end of the year. So it's, you know, it's, it's something that was, was small and you understand 
why they did it, but it's also clear they didn't think through the consequences um, that that would have on those in the market who have those sorts of gains to invest. Right. Yeah. So one of the, one of the big outstanding issues still getting back to right. fund creation considerations. Now uh, we took a little detour and talked about 1231 there for a minute. Um, but getting back to fund creation perspective now from a, uh, from a tax perspective, are there any other considerations that we haven't touched upon yet? I would say the one big one that I think we haven't really talked about, um, and it would also be one that I would say that, you know, a lot of the funds haven't necessarily been addressing, um, is, is the exit. And this is probably some, you know, was a huge topic that you would have heard um, in the latest hearing as well, because right now, you know, with some limited carve-outs that you can't even rely on yet in the second set of proposed regulations, you know, the only way to get this exclusion after a 10-year hold and a step-up in basis is by disposing of your interest in the fund, which has really made it challenging when you're looking at a multi-asset fund and attempting to do it that way, because essentially what you need to be looking for is someone who would purchase your entire, you know, partnership interest in all of the underlying assets, um, and, it, and it wouldn't allow you to sell off those assets um, in order to get this benefit. And so, you know, this is, I think, one of the pieces that is caused at least a lot of our client base to, at this time, still feel most comfortable having it's one property, one fund. Um, but I think it's, you know, it, it's definitely been an impediment uh, to, to doing something on a grander scale. And it's also, I think, one of the things that's been an impediment to make the financial advisory world feel comfortable um, having their clients make these investments. Because I can go ahead and show you in a projection what the tax benefit would be to the investor if everything happens perfectly. But if I can't get comfortable telling you that they will be able to make that exit, successfully at the end, you know, then you'll never see that. Um, so I think that that's why we've seen maybe an uptick in some of the funds that have been looking to set up as a REIT and, you know, considering, you know, becoming a public REIT at some point where you'd be able to sell your shares actively in the market, you know, and things like that, that, that help kind of craft an exit strategy. But right now I feel like personally, that's one of the things that I've been most uncomfortable with, um, setting up with our clients. Yeah, and layering on a REIT structure, correct me if I'm wrong, is not for the faint of heart. That's that's mostly reserved for, for very large <laughs> funds. Is that correct? Uh, it, yes. I mean, because there's a whole lot more to being a REIT and things that you have to do. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be oversimplifying it in, in saying that that's, you know, a, an alternative um, to, to help with the exit strategy. Right. That was an issue that came up over and over and over again at the recent IRS public hearing was the treatment of of multi-asset funds um exiting options at, at different levels of the of the fund at the at the qualified opportunity fund level at the qualified opportunity zone business level and the qualified opportunity zone property level each of those three different exit scenarios are, are treated differently and uh, there was there was there were calls by by numerous speakers to synthesize those rules and and uh in the goal of making it much easier for for individuals and and funds to exit efficiently right yeah and, and you're you know you're correct there's multiple you know there's multiple layers in the regulations and the code currently that treat you know a slightly different investment structures completely differently and so you know to the extent that we can kind of get things on the same page we understand what the overall incentive here is and what they are looking to accomplish um, and so it, it would be a real shame if somehow we got like hung up in some you know technicalities that are, 
are seemingly minor, um, but that could have a huge impact, you know, from one deal to the next. Yeah, that would be a shame. Uh, hopefully, Treasury and the IRS will get this worked out here in the next uh, few months, and and we'll get final regs that satisfy everybody, right? Or hopefully, almost everybody. We'll see what happens. Fingers crossed. Exactly. <laughs> are there any other considerations for for those who are setting up a qualified opportunity fund, or, or did we cover them all already? Or cover yeah, the cover the cover the major them, ones? You know, yeah. It, yeah, I was gonna say, is is things kind of you know continue moving and things get up and running and some of these actually, you know, projects are done and, and things are being placed in service. There will be other things to consider at that point, you know, as far as, you know, how can you feel confident that what you've done would qualify as a substantial improvement, you know, looking at other things that you could do to potentially accelerate deductions and things of that nature. Um, so I think there still will be plenty of um, areas that we'll dig into once these projects are really off the ground and running. Um, but I think we hit on the, on, the, on the big ones or the things to consider on the front end. You know, even if it's a consideration of something that's going to happen on the exit, it's still something that you want to get um, nailed down or at least feel relatively comfortable about before you before you get started. Good. And and then fund management along the way. I mean, you know, putting putting the front end aside, you know, management from day two onward through year 10. Uh, what are you advising your clients? Are there any are there any high level points of consideration there? Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, some of the players in this space um, would be ones who have already, you know, they already understand this, right? They, they maybe live in a fund management world, and so there really isn't much to talk about. Um, you know, obviously, they need to make sure that these tests that need to be met throughout time are being met, um, but, but they at least kind of get the underlying concept of managing a fund. What's been interesting is that because fact that this program required a fund entity to be created, um, there are people who are moving into the space and having to have this fund management layer that they wouldn't normally have incorporated into one of their deals. Um, and so we definitely have some that we've been working with and even trying to determine what other services maybe internally we can provide to help them with that day-to-day and you know just understanding the communications with the investors and all of the other things that will be required. Um, to live in a space that maybe is outside of their comfort zone. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there was actually a, a speaker at the at the hearing, and I, I forgive me that I'm referencing the hearing so much uh, during our call today. But uh, but uh, we're actually recording this episode on July 11th, and the hearing was just a couple days ago, so it's it's very fresh and in, in our minds right now. But getting back to my point, there was a speaker at the hearing, uh, James Rose, um, representing Rose Development in in Utah. And he is a real estate developer. He's not a fund manager, but he is now. And uh, so he, he, he made the point that he's had to become a fund manager just to uh, take advantage of, of this incredible program. But he's, he's had to, um, he's basically had to get a crash course in, in fund management and the, uh, the IRS regulations and, and the statutory language have been uh, complicated to understand for somebody who's, who's not, who doesn't have experience and expertise in in tax law or, or tax accounting so um, yeah that's a that's a good point you make uh, and I think there's a lot of people like that out there who are similar to James who are you know smaller real estate developers you know not not as large as as the sky bridges of the world who are trying to raise billions of dollars but you know smaller 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 real estate developers who, who may not have fund management experience who suddenly find themselves as fund managers now 
right? And your, your options are either to get educated quick, right, or hire people who can help you do it. So <laughs> that's unfortunately, you know, the I guess what they have to, there's no way to avoid it, I guess is what I'm saying. If they want to use this program, there's likely not a way to avoid it. So those are your options. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Uh, well, Valerie, this is this has been great. I think we've we've come to the end of our conversation here, unless, uh, unless there's anything else. Did I, did I miss anything? Did we miss any points? No, I don't think so. This has been great. Good. Well, um, thanks for joining me today. Can you tell our listeners before we go where they can go to learn more about you and Plant Moran? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So Valerie Grundusky on uh, LinkedIn is where you can find me there. But also for Plant Moran, um, we have a site where we kind of update any of our you know podcasts, video conferences, and articles that we do. And that is at plantmoran.com slash opportunity zones. So nice and easy. Excellent. Yeah, that is easy. Um, so for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that Valerie and I discussed on today's show. I'll have a link to Valerie's LinkedIn account where she is active, and I'll, I'll have a link to the Plant Moran Opportunity Zone Center where they, they post a lot of their Opportunity Zone-specific content. Valerie, thanks again. This has been great. I, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Perfect. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.